as we conclude the days of unleavened bread this year, I'd like to focus on one last lesson that God taught the Israelites during the Exodus. It's the same lesson that we learn and relearn every year during the week that we keep the Days of Unleavened Bread. Much of the Days of Unleavened Bread is rehearsed through the actions that we take before the days even begin. So we go, for example, to Exodus chapter 12, and we read how God commanded the Israelites. In verse 15, we read, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. He says, Forever, whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance." So, again, verse 18, In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses. So, we today, we remove leaven from our homes before the days of unleavened begin. We understand that lesson and the meaning of that lesson. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we read how Paul brought that lesson home to the church at Corinth. And he said, it's actually reported, verse 1, that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And then he said, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were, was pre- were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." And he brings home the lesson from the days of unleavened bread. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth." So we understand the importance of discerning sin, every last crumb of it, and the importance of rooting sin out throughout the year and throughout our life. And before the days of unleavened bread, we, we rehearse that by removing leaven from our homes. But once these days begin, we begin to practice a different lesson. And this is the lesson I'd like to highlight today. The lesson the danger of leaven coming in. And that's the title for the sermon, The Danger of Leaven Coming In. Now we see this lesson mentioned in a roundabout way in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth here just a couple of three chapters later. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. 
he writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all, ate, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But he says, verse 5, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So he's talking about ancient Israel, but he's bringing the lesson forward, just as he brought the lesson forward of the days of unleavened bread and the, the meaning of, un, un, of leaven here a few chapters ago. We see again, he points to the Israelites and what was commanded in those days as meaningful for his audience at this time. He says, verse 6 then, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He continues, he says, And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drank, drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And then verse 11, he repeats, he says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, therefore, let him who thinks he stands, who think we're okay, take heed, lest he fall. Verse 13, then the encouragement, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, you also will, will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. So the Israelites removed the leaven from their homes, and they obeyed God, slaying that Passover lamb, the, putting the blood on the, on the doorpost of their homes, uh, gathering inside their homes until morning. They did what God said. They were, you might say, in leavenless harmony with God. But in the days after that, the days ahead of them, according to the story as we read, they would learn just how easily leaven and an attitude of rebellion toward God can return. So how does, how does leaven attack us? How does leaven come back in? How does it worm its way into our minds and erode our, our spiritual strength? So let's go back and follow the, the story of the Exodus just a little bit farther and see what happened to Israel. Let's go back to Numbers, much of the latter part of Exodus, and then most of Leviticus is devoted to the laws and the statutes and the judgments of God, as well as uh, sacrificial laws and procedures. In Numbers, we pick up the story. Let's go to Numbers 21. Let's go to Numbers 21. Here in Numbers, 20, or Numbers we, we pick up the story of what was happening to Israel. Uh, we, we read about Moses' weakness at the water of Meribah, and again, the people's impatience and unfaithfulness. But as God corrected them, he also blessed them, and they continued moving relentlessly into, into the land of Canaan. But we come to Numbers 21 then, and we read, let's begin here in verse 21. 
Numbers 21, verse 21, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. So he gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword, and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the people of Ammon, for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. So we, we read, we get a sense of what's happening. This king was defeated. You can read the rest of this chapter. Let's come down to, let's go down to verse, uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 22 then. Chapter 22. Now, we see in chapter 22, Verse 1, Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at the time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people. So this was quite a distance up in the, the headwaters of the, of the Euphrates and up to the north where they continued to practice some of the ancient Babylonian uh, uh, religious rites. And apparently this Balaam was considered to be a, a, a very powerful uh, very, very powerful prophet and religious leader, such that he was renowned throughout the whole uh, area down into Canaan. And uh, so they decided to call upon him and ask for his help. So we see... He says, uh, verse 5, Look, a people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. You see the extent of his reputation as being uh, a powerful religious prophet, leader, and um, he was renowned throughout the, throughout the area. So we see verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Now, as you go through the story, you can see what happened. Um, you see God uh, speaks to Balaam and says, Verse 9, who are these men with you? And so Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, is sent to me, saying, and we have a, a repetition of the conversation, and God says to Balaam, you shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rises in the morning and says to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And so this give and take goes back and forth and back and forth. We come down to verse 19. Now, therefore, well, verse 18, Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So he acknowledged, apparently, he acknowledged the true God, even as he, uh, as 
happened much later when Babylonish practices were uh, mixed with a, a worship of God. And that's what we read about with uh, the, uh, the Samaritans and, of course, later uh, Simon and um, and further down in history within even the great false church. But um, that being said, we see that he acknowledged God, and God says, look, you are not to, you are not to go. Now, ultimately, we go back and forth, and we see, of course, the famous account of the, the donkey speaking to, to Balaam. Let's go down to verse um, uh, verse, let's see here, verse 36. Now, when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Arnon, the boundary of the territory. And then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And verse 38, Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Verse 39, so Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kirjath Huzoth. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. Now, I've taken a few minutes to read through this and remind you a little bit of the story of what was going on. Uh, we can continue in chapter 23, where Balaam's first prophecy was uttered, and his second prophecy, and we, we see how he tried to curse Israel, and yet all he could do was bless Israel, and ultimately his third prophecy in chapter 24, and his fourth prophecy, the latter part of the of the uh, of the chapter chapter 24, we read about that. He took up the, his oracle, verse 15 of chapter 24, and and we see that again this prophecy about what is what was to happen to Israel. Verse 17: I see him, but not now; I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob; a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and batter the brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of tumult. Well, that's the last thing the Moabites wanted to hear. But the point that I'm making in reading all this is not simply just to review the account of of Balaam and Balak and Moab, but to actually make a, 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 another point, and that is this, that is this. During all of this, as this is going, going on, we're talking about one, two, three, the better part of three chapters here. Well, I know they didn't have uh, chapters in the, uh, you know, in the Bible until more recent days, but three chapters worth of time going into this, this account. During all this time, Israel had no idea of everything that was happening behind the scenes, behind their backs, you might say. All this going on, and they had no idea that people were scheming to destroy them. Let's go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You see, because ultimately we find that Balak and Balaam were successful. Revelation chapter 2 and verse... Oh, let's go to verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write... These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell. He says, uh, verse 13, where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. 
But he mentions specifically, here we find years and years and years later, we find this mentioned about this episode we were just reading here just a moments ago. He says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In other words, again, what was happening during this time was a whole scheme of machinations to destroy them. Now, what's the point for our purposes today? It's simply this. And this is point number one, or uh, issue number one, and that is this. That leaven can attack us from a completely unexpected direction. During the, as the days of unleavened bread begin, we remove all the leaven from our homes. But as we're going through the week, have you ever had a situation where inadvertently you ate, you ate leaven, didn't mean to, but because of something that was maybe in a, a product that you were eating, and you find out later, oh, there's leaven in that product. I thought it was unleavened. Um, perhaps uh, you, you were completely unaware or you, you accidentally uh, uh, ate something. But the point is, it, it, it's with the, in this case, things were happening behind their scenes that they were not even a, a, aware of. For the Israelites, as, a, as for us, we prepare to, to get, we get the leaven out of our, our, our homes. But as we go through the week and as we go on through our life, we have to be prepared for leaven coming from an unexpected direction. How do we handle it? What do we do? Are we alert to leaven coming in from an unexpected direction? I'll give you another example of how, of how we see in the Bible this being an issue. This is uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. We'll read the account of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6. Here we see the account of Nehemiah where here he was working to uh, try to, to rebuild the city and to, uh, to establish a, a toehold in the land for the Jews. And, and we see for all of his efforts, we see here behind the scenes, there were those who were working against him. We see uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse, verse 1, we'll begin reading. It happened when Sanballat... Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messages to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sambalat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. Uh, he says, and you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come, therefore, and let us consult together. So he, 
tried to oppose him through through blackmail in this situation. But the but what was happening for our purposes in a very real life way behind the scenes while he was trying to work, we find this opposition coming from an, an, an angle that uh, he, he, he was not aware of the conversations going back and forth. Even some of the nobles in the land, they were working against him. Sometimes he would have been aware. Sometimes he, he was not certainly aware of every conversation. But, but he had to be prepared and he had to be wise and discerning to be able to defend against these challenges from different directions, some of which, as you go through the story, he could expect, others he did not. Whether we realize it or not, Satan is scheming to bring us down. And sometimes there are even others who are uh, scheming to bring us down. It may be... They're uh, hurt by us or offended by us, or for one reason or another, their their attitude towards us is negative, and perhaps they may be speaking behind our back negatively against us, uh, influencing others, um, or, or certainly being maybe even being two-faced, where to our face they're positive, but behind us, uh, behind our backs, they're speaking ill of us. Um, but we, we don't always know what's happening outside of our immediate purview. But we certainly know that Satan is, is working against us and would love to see us fail. Let's go to Job. Of course, you knew that we were going to go to, to, to Job, didn't you? When we begin to read about or think about Satan working against us, how can we forget Job? We see here, oops, turn to Esther. Job, we read here in uh, verse 1, or rather verse 6 of Job chapter 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, from where did you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And then Satan answers and says, verse uh, verse 9, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So we see that behind the scenes, you might say, unbeknownst to Job, there was... There was something going on behind the scenes. And God even knew, God was aware of it, as God is aware of what's happening behind the scenes on our part. Is God aware that Satan may be trying to attack us? Is God aware that someone is speaking ill of us and trying to tear down our reputation or whatever it might be? Of course he is. Of course he is. God was aware of what was happening to Job, and he was watching to see how Job reacted. He was watching to see what Job learned from this. You know, this can be the case on the job. It can be the case um, even with uh, brethren who, uh, within the church, who may, for as I said, may be offended or some some issue may have come up. We we don't know what may be happening 
that we don't know about. But yet, 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 we have to be careful that we, we discern properly when the situation becomes, when we become aware of the situation, so it does not then become a root of bitterness, a root of malice, a root of offense, a root of rebellion towards God, because that's what can happen. If we turn back to, to Numbers, we see that the Israelites, they ran afoul because of what was happening behind the scenes. If we turn to, uh, to read the story of Job, as we're, as we're reading here, we can see what happened and how he, how he, how he reacted. Ultimately, how he came around and learned the lesson. But, but the, the challenge from an unexpected direction, and the, the leaven, you might say, that can be introduced through an unexpected direction, it can be the, the, the spiritual death of us if we are not able to discern and be on a, a alert. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know, when, we're, when we face a trial, it can be demoralizing. It can be discouraging. When we realize that we're up against something that has that we have nothing to do with but it simply has come out of us out of the at us out of the blue it, perhaps it can be demoralizing it can be discouraging but how do we react how do we react first uh, corinthians chapter 5 first corinthians chapter 5 we went back i want to come back to where we were with um the church with paul's message to the to the church in corinth and we let's go to verse 7 we read the first part of this chapter before, and let's see how this comes into, the play, into play here. Verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So we eat unleavened bread, we imbibe in unleavened bread, symbolically not taking leaven into us as opposed to allowing ourselves to feed on malice or to to have produced in our heart malice and 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 wickedness as it describes here hebrews chapter 12 talks about this hebrews chapter 12 when we are confronted with with trials especially if they're unexpected and they're, uh, they're very difficult for us, maybe even demoralizing, we can fall prey to a root of bitterness. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse, uh, verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So we need to be, be extra careful, extra careful that we don't allow, as I said, something that has blindsided us, to cause us to fall, to develop uh, resentment or anger or bitterness. Let's go back to Numbers. 
Numbers, and we're going to pick up where we were here. Numbers 25 describes what happened. And uh, as you flip through Numbers, actually, we're not going to read from Numbers. We're going to go a little bit further to Joshua. But as you flip through Numbers, the account of Israel goes on. Um, We find more details uh, regarding the latter part of Numbers, uh, different laws. Uh, And then in Deuteronomy, a review of the Exodus thus far. And then we come to Joshua. Let's pick it up in Joshua. In Joshua chapter 7... Joshua chapter 7, we read of the defeat of Ai. I'm not going to read the whole account, but we see that this was a disaster. The men of Ai, verse 5, the men of Ai struck down about 36 of the Israelites, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. And then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So we see that they were defeated, and God, Joshua says, God, what's, what's going on? What's happening? We come to the latter part of the chapter, and we see verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Now, the rest of the account here goes through the effort to try to discover who was at fault here, who was, who was disobeying God. And we come to verse 20, where Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment... 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. What can we learn from this? Well, leaven can be introduced, as we see in the account of the Israelites and their journeys and their challenges. Leaven can be introduced through impressive things. Impressive things. He lusted after things that seemed impressive. Now, we do that, don't we? We do that. One of our core physical characteristics is the desire to have what seems impressive to us, what impresses us, what we admire, honor, uh, respect, position, wealth, things, um, great knowledge. These impressive things can be our downfall, however. Let's go to Mark chapter 12. Let's just look at a, a few scriptures that, that, that speak to some of these impressive things. Well, Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we'll go to verse, uh, verse 38. Christ, then in teaching his disciples, said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. He said, wealth or great knowledge, and in in this case, um, respect and credibility for their position 
he said, this can be a danger because it introduces pride. It introduces, it serves as a pathway, this sense of power, hypocrisy. And so he says, instead, he says, be impressed by, and we, this is what we read, verse 41, true generosity. He says, verse 41, Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. And it was seen as such. It was obvious to see. In this case, wealth was the impressive thing. But then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants. And so he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more. She has been more generous, truly generous from the heart and even self-sacrificial. It says, than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. So we see uh, an example here of a contrast between, in this case, true generosity, and on the other, uh, on the other side, we see uh, wealth and honor and impressiveness and uh, respect. And so what we, what we see is he's saying, look, these, these things can all be very impressive, but the heart, the fruit, what comes out of that, those impressive things is not good. For us, we need to be, we need to be vigilant that impressive things don't serve as a pathway for, for covetousness and the desire for those impressive things is such that leaven or sin, uh, antagonism towards God's values, godly values, true values, and those, and, and, and that sin is introduced into us through that pathway. Leaven can be introduced through imp- impressive things. Uh, Matthew 24, uh, Christ uses this principle with the disciples. Matthew 24, and we read here verse Verse 1, then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Aren't these impressive, they said, and they were impressive. If you read about Herod's temple, it was very impressive. But Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. He said, you know, it may be very impressive, but it's going to be gone. Don't get too impressed by the things of this world. So that ultimately, what's, what's the point? Is because that, that either covetousness to be part of the power or to have that great knowledge or that great respect or that great credibility, all of that, that can serve as a pathway for us, again, to be prideful, even with us, even to have the association to great things. This can happen to us in our land. We can be very proud of being in a, a land that is prosperous and powerful. And yet, I'm speaking for, uh, for Americans here, and, and in our case, we have to recognize that it's not our greatness that has given the blessings to this land. It's God's promise to Abraham. And, and we have to keep that in mind. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 7, we read how Jeremiah said was was inspired by God to say, "Look, don't talk about the, the the temple and how great the temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord." They had a, the, by the, by association to this the great temple, 
They thought they were okay, but inside they were full of treachery. And so he goes on and he says, you know, look what happened at, at, at Shiloh, for example. He, he will allow that temple to be destroyed, and he did allow that to be destroyed, because simply by association with great things, impressive things, uh, that doesn't mean that we are great in the heart. That doesn't mean that we have a godly heart. And so this, uh, there's, there are a number of different examples about impressive things in the, the New Testament that we could turn to. Um, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Satan tried to tempt Christ through impressive things. When he took him to the pinnacle, well, I guess we can just go quickly there. Matthew 4 and verse 4, we see how the devil, verse 5 rather, the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He said, uh, verse 6, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. So I want to come to the next section here, verse, uh, verse 8. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. But, say, but Christ was not impressed. All the greatness of the, of the world, he said, is not going to convince me to rebel against God, to uh, compromise my obedience and my loyalty to, to God. So... One last example I want to give you, Matthew chapter 24, or 23 rather, back to Matthew 23, just near where we were a moment ago, Matthew 23 and verse 25, here again he confronts the scribes and Pharisees, and I want to break into the flow here in verse 25 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence blind pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness you know we can we can be impressed by even religiosity and we can tr- we we can desire to appear to be religious. We can have our talk be very very religious, and and yet inside, what are we? If we only covet the appearance of being religious because it is admired by other people, it's it's given respect and credibility. If we covet that that respect. And, and we're not that way on the inside. What we're doing is we're simply reflecting the problem with the Pharisees. So, so what is it that we covet? Do we truly want to, to be like God? Or do we, are, are we drawn to impressive things so we can appear impressive ourselves before other people? What is it that we covet? What is it that impresses us? Is it wealth? Is it a confidence in our own ability? Or, 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 or what, what are the impressive things 
that we covet through which leaven can be introduced then. Let's go back to the account of the Israelites and let's just go a little bit farther as we head down the home stretch here. One more, uh, one more issue to be concerned about, to be aware of. Leaven can also be introduced through trust and deception. And we're going to go to Joshua, uh, Joshua chapter 9 and read about the Gibeonites, the city of, of Gibeah and their representatives. It came to pass, verse 1, when all the kings were on this side of the Jordan and the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusites heard about it, and they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily, and they went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins, torn and mended, and he says, old and patched sandals on their feet. They appeared to be as if they had taken a long journey, and they said as much. They said, we've come, verse 6, from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. And the Israelites were trusting. Joshua was trusting. And as a result, they were deceived. You know the story here, how uh, we, we find that the, uh, uh, the elders, they said to Joshua, verse 8, they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where, you are from, where, where do you come from? They gave their story. And uh, so therefore, verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. So we find in this case that there was a leaven, and that leaven was trust uh, the, and, and, and deception mixed together so that they, they trusted the deception, and this deception was a pathway to them disobeying God. Because really, God commanded them to do the opposite of what they did. What led them, what inspired them to disobey God? What inspired, you might say, that leaven to grow in them of disobedience to God? It was that they put trust in falsehood. And they allowed themselves to be, to be deceived. And as a result, this, this thorn of paganism was allowed to thrive in the land. Now, we can look at the story of Samson in Judges chapter 16. If we go, if we go forward, let's just briefly at least a glance at it, if you want to put it in your notes, because uh, Samson's story is certainly one of trust and, and then deception. Christ, uh, 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 Samson unwisely put his trust in this lady. We see verse 16. Well, chapter, where shall I begin here? Um, chapter 16, Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. When the Gazites were told Samson has come here, they surrounded the place. They lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. They were quiet all night, saying in the morning, when it is daylight, we'll kill him. He lay low until the midnight. Then he arose at midnight, took doors took hold of the doors of the gate of the city, the two gateposts, pulled, the, up the, pulled them up, bar and all, 
and carry them uh, to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Actually, I wanted to begin in verse 4 with, uh, with Deborah here, or rather Delilah. Verse 4, it, Afterward it happened that he loved the woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, and you know the rest of the story, don't you? Because as you go through the story, you see, we're seeing, you might say, behind the scenes, we're seeing the account from a third-person view, and we see how Delilah was building trust in Samson, meanwhile deceiving him. And that really is what the whole account is based on, isn't it? Lesson for us. Lesson for us. We have to recognize that we can have a proclivity to, 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 to trust in what is not real. We can trust, sometimes we can even trust in some one, what we would, what we would read or what we would hear in one place or another that will actually tell us something that's wrong. Our baseline has to be the scriptures. And, and it has to, we have to put the scriptures first and God's word first as opposed to voices that are, are telling us something that is in contrast to what the scriptures say, or maybe taking a twist on what the scriptures say that we can recognize, but we say, well, maybe I need to think about it more, or maybe they, yes, that's not right, but this is right over here, and it's a bit of a mixture. No, we need to recognize that that is not a trustworthy voice if whether we read it or, and the, and the, the internet is just awash with the flood of ideas that are a mixture of right and wrong, we have to be like the Bereans to study, to, yes, trust, but verify. Trust carefully, um, but verify. Acts chapter 20, we should always be alert to compromising our obedience to God through trust in others. Paul warned about this in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter Acts chapter 20 at the end of his stay with the with the church at Ephesus here. We have this very very emotional departure of Paul that's recorded and uh, we begin reading in chapter 20 and verse 17. We'll pick it up, therefore, in verse 26. Therefore, verse 26, I testify you to this day, I'm sorry, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. So in essence, he, he said, look, I have told you everything, of, of, I have told you the things of God. And you can check those things, as I mentioned the church at Berea, but I have declared to you the counsel of God. Verify it and be careful that there will be those who come along after me who will not give you the counsel of God. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples to after themselves. The history of the church is a history of individuals falling prey to a deception and deceiving others. So it's not that we it's not that we have to distrust one another, it's just that our greatest trust 
has to be in God, and we recognize the humanity of others. We recognize that all humans are fallible. We're all fallible. So we have to trust God first and foremost and not and, and guard against leaven, which would be then the fruits of bitterness towards God or anger towards God or disobedience towards God. Those are fruits that can come in or that can develop because we trust someone and our our affinity with them actually draws us away from the closeness with God. That's what Paul warned them about. And that, as I said again, is, is unfortunately the history of the church. If you've been in the church of God for any length of time, you've, you've seen this happen, where people are drawn away and loved ones are drawn away. And uh, so we have to be we have to be alert for it because it can be a leaven that and a pathway that can lead us to actually then bear unrighteous fruits. You know, Paul warned the uh, the elders here at Ephesus, but uh, he also warned Timothy. Let's go to First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. We read here, beginning in verse in verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches otherwise, well, I guess I should back up to verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Verse 2, And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. He added those, that, that uh, commendation to the other things that he had mentioned earlier in the, uh, in the, in the chapter and throughout the, the letter, talking, well, in, in chapter five in particularly, um, uh, talking about how to treat other members, older men, older women, uh, elders, um, uh, and he goes through, uh, uh, what would you say? He goes through instructions as to how to treat other people within the church, and then he says, teach and exhort these things, because this is real Christianity. How we treat other people around us is where the rubber meets the road. It's the application of the things that we learn. It shows where our heart is. So he says, verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. So he's talking about those who would, who would promote friction and strife and heresy and division. And, and the reason those things are successful, I say successful in, the, in, in terms of, of, of Satan's success, the reason that those things are sometimes successful is through misplaced trust and deception. And heresy, division, words of contention, they can be successful in a bad way, obviously. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich... Now we come back to that other principle I was mentioning before, that we need to guard against that leaven coming in of, of a desire of, of impressive things. In this case, a desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in de- destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So he gives a, a, a broad statement here that I think is, is somewhat of a, of a wrap-up to what we've been talking about. But you, O man of God, flee these things. Don't be deceived by useless wranglings. Don't be impressed by wealth, or by power, or by knowledge. Don't be careful that you don't end up having those, being impressed by those things, serve as a, a gateway for actually an attitude of pride, or an attitude of a, a sense of superiority. Um, don't allow that to, to sneak in, and, uh, and don't allow yourself to be misled. Be careful, he says, instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot. He says, verse 14, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And then verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Don't allow the the riches to then serve as a gateway to haughtiness, that leaven, he says, not nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. In other words, don't covet impressive things, Instead, recognize and desire the good things, the quality things, those things of God, the right values, humility, unselfishness, a true love of others and concern for others. He says, verse 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So, a powerful message from Paul to Timothy about what's important in life and how it's very easy to have leaven enter into us, as I've described. As we we conclude the days of unleavened bread, then, let's redouble our efforts to to guard against leaven coming in. 
I've just given three areas or three pathways, you might say, that leaven can come in, producing then bad fruit, growing and developing within us, within our heart. These are not the only pathways, but they're three anyway. And But let's, let's redouble our efforts to guard against leaven, leaven coming, coming in from, from all directions and, and, and guard just as fastidiously as we remove leaven from our homes in the first place. You know, we recognize that leaven can come in from unexpected directions. We recognize it can be introduced by the things that impress us the most. And we need to be aware of how leaven can be introduced through deception or, or misplaced trust. So we listen, we learn, we trust, and we verify. We prove what we hear through the Word of God, just as those Bereans did, those spiritual forefathers that we read about here in, in the Scriptures, in the book of Acts. God knows what is happening behind the scenes, and He can help us. He knows and he can help us. He knows the weakness of our frame. He knows our human nature. And he knows how to help us to be impressed. He can strengthen us through his spirit. If we're willing to ask him, he can strengthen us then in godly, righteous character instead of human greatness. He knows how, to, how susceptible we can be to trickery and to deceit. And he can give us discernment and wisdom. Let's go to Psalm 51 and conclude there. Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 really enunciates the desire that we should have, the, the mindset that we should have that will protect us against leaven coming in if we can take on this, this mindset. Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to Verse 1, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Don't allow me to think highly of myself and to seek and to be high-minded, seeking humanly high things. He says, instead, cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I recognize who and what I am. I recognize my the weakness of my frame. He goes down in verse 7. He goes on to say, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Keep me clean. Keep me wholesome, he says. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's not susceptible to leaven coming in, but protected with defenses against leaven coming in. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners shall be converted to you. If I can do this, if I can remain faithful, if I can be protected against leaven coming in, then I can be a tool in your hands serving you to help others. And isn't that what our life is all about, ultimately? Learning so we can be able to help and to strengthen and encourage others, both in this life and in the future. So as we conclude the days of unleavened bread, 
the time is over that we remove leaven from our homes. And while we may eat leaven as, as we go about our, our daily life, let's be aware, let's be vigilant about the danger of leaven coming in, spiritual leaven coming in.